This is Lit Fantastic, a podcast series that explores authors and their obsessions. I'm your host, Neil Aiken. In this episode, we speak with Jessica Piazza, who's the author of three poetry collections, Bang, This Is Not a Sky, and Obliterations. She also happens to be one of the people I went to school with for my PhD. We came in the same cohort, and in some fantastically improbable turn of events, out of the three people accepted for poetry that particular year, the two of us had the same birthday. I'm not certain how that has anything to do with the interview, but I do find that particularly fascinating. Jessica serves in a variety of capacities. She is a contributing editor for The Offending Adam. She's a screener for the National Poetry Series. And she does a lot of work uh, as well in a blog series called Poetry Has Value, which explores how individual poets are making or not making money with their work. So let's, let's get to the interview. At this particular moment, I've just told Jessica that of all the possible people I could have included for this particular podcast series, I thought at the very top of the list, it had to be her. Why? Because Jessica's obsession is with obsession. <laughs> and I, I think it's a compliment. <laughs> well, I think of it in terms of both an intimate knowledge of your first book kind of reveals that this is this is subject matter that you uh, you seem to care deeply about and explore in a lot of different ways. And um, I do. Yeah. <laughs> So I was wondering if you wanted to – I know it's it's a first book and it's, it's been a little bit of time and probably worn out from talking about it. But in this particular case, in the subject of obsessions, I was wondering if you would kind of revisit that book and talk maybe a little bit about what drew you to these subjects of uh, these these phobias and philias. Sure. Oh, absolutely. So in Tarabang starts with the epigraph. Uh, it's a John Waters epigraph. And he had said famously, without obsession, life is nothing. And in an abstract way, I think that's why I'm obsessed with obsession. I think that our lusts and our fears, these sort of extreme manifestations of emotion, they are the things that make life juicy and they punctuate our rather humdrum and banal every day, which we all have, even those of us who read more exciting lives than less usually tend to feel like our own lives have a sort of routine to them, but it's those things which compel, so those compulsive things or repel (laughs) repulsive things that I think innervate us, right? Uh, They give us life and meat and flesh and blood and sweat. And so I was very interested in that. And in Tarabang, which is a book comprised of all formal poems, almost entirely sonnets, each takes its title from a clinical phobia or a clinical philia. Arachnophobia, we all know. Unfortunately, we all know pedophilia, obsessive fears and obsessive lusts or compulsions. But it started with the fears, I'll be honest. The 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 philias came later. The phobias came first. And mm. I wonder if that's not always the case. <laughs> Maybe I'm getting a little too pop psych for my own good here. But but I have some some anxiety. Speaking of pop psych, now now you're the therapist. <laughs> but no, I, I mean, I, I've had some anxiety issues for many years. And when I first started trying to write about them, I think I only realized them when I had a panic attack trying to go spelunking, actually. <laughs> and I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on public radio, but I'm kind of a badass. So I don't usually panic about things like that. And I did, and I couldn't figure out why. And so I started trying to sort of exercise it through poetry. 
and something just clicked with me. And though most of the philias and phobias that came later had nothing to do really with me in terms of my own fears and lust, just the subject became endlessly fascinating for me. And if you could even say maybe I was obsessed with it. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it is. It is very. Um, it's very true. There, there is a, there is an obsession with obsession that that seems to run through that book. But I, I don't think it just ends there. I, I, I wonder, like, do you feel that this obsession with obsessions has spilled over into into other projects? Like, for instance, the Erasure Project oh, yeah. or 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 your Chapbook Project. Are there other ways in which it manifests itself? Oh, absolutely. For better or for worse, I do not have one of those sort of tendencies toward prophecies that are daily and even and routine. In other words, I don't write every day. I wish I did, (laughs) but I don't. And in fact, I can go months without writing. And then some switch flips. And usually that is when something engages me enough that I can't, I can't let go of it. It's almost like uh, ruminating in, in, in the technical sense. I was like chewing on it um, over and over and over again until I can kind of work into, through, and out of it. And all of my books have been projects. I can't write, I, not that I can't write, but my best work and my, my most commonly done work has been in the realm of project, in the realm of something that obsesses me enough that I want to work on it and nothing else really. And so my second, my chat book happened because I got this sort of fire under me about the ways in which visual art and poetry meet, which is not anything new and innovative in terms of that. I mean, there's been ecrastic work for time immemorial, (laughs) but I was really excited about the idea of writing poems that existed both inside the work of art and outside the work of art simultaneously. And I got really into it. And the reason that book stayed a chapbook is at a certain point, I felt done. I lost the obsession. And I still love the idea. And I probably could have written 20 more or whatever it would have been to be a full-length collection. But for me, no, it has to be that obsession. When I'm done, I'm Mm -hmm. done. And it's going to be what it is. (laughs) And I'll never put that book into a full-length collection, you know, as some people do with chapbook. They'll expand it Mm -hmm. into a full-length collection. But for me, the piece of art is exactly the size and shape of my obsession with the topic. I, I love that, so. that, that, that you could say it that way, that the size of it, it how'd you put it exactly? The, the piece the of art is the and size shape. and shape yeah. of the obsession. And I, I think that's, that's really a profound way of looking at it. You know, you were talking about the fact that some of us aren't daily routine writers. We can't, or we don't work day to day on an assigned schedule and just produce work constantly and consistently. But instead, and this is what came to mind, especially once you brought up ruminating, is the ways in which we actually function more like camels or dromedaries moving through the <laughs> desert. That, that we, like, we, we consume a lot of stuff. And then we travel through an indefinite period of time where we may not be actually, you know, we're in a desert, and then we find an oasis again. And all the while, we're ruminating. <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> I think, or sort of drawing. I mean, and or I drawing on the resources drawing. that we've already carried with us to to kind I of. I wish it was that way because that would mean that the whole time I would be drawing off of something. But unfortunately, I feel like I get to the oasis. I drink, I drink, I drink, and then I forget to 
to pack some water to go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's that's a different My thing. Pump remains empty. <laughs> um, but no, I, I know exactly what you're saying, and and I'll, I'll be honest with you. There's something to be said about all of us being honest and uh, and forthright and having disclosure about the differences in our processes. Because I think there's a combination of things. I think one is this way in which we associate art with a version of madness mm. and and the madness with a version of mania. And so we have this sort of cultural idea of the artist as the manic as the manic creator who's always always doing. And pushing through that need. And and that's one part of it. And another is just the straight sort of puritanical <laughs> North American work ethic ideal in which, you know, we have enough problems as poets trying to convince other people that the work we do is real work. If we're not doing it every single day, you know, ass and chair, as they say, it seems that much harder to sort of justify our existence as people doing something worthwhile. And so I lament in some ways that my process is this, <laughs> that my process is, oh, I got to do it, got to do it, got to do it. Nope, done. I mean, it's my process in life, too. I'm a deadline-driven person, mm-hmm. and I get I get it all done, and then maybe I won't leave my house for a day or two. Well, and, and this kind of brings us to to sort of one of your other projects, one of your other obsessions, which is this, this Poetry Has Value blog, and sort of mm-hmm. the discussion that... that it facilitates about sort of an honesty about how we work and how we, how our work is being valued and compensated <laughs> in the world and kind of the anxiety and guilt that we feel around, you know, those differences. Because I, I think you're right. I think very, it is very true that there is kind of a narrative or, or sort of a, an idea of what the writer and the writer's work is supposed to look like, what, what their day mm-hmm. is supposed to consist of. And the truth is that we don't all fit it. I mean, I, I know some writers that are, you know, they are, um, they suffer from, suffer maybe is not really the, the right word, but they, hypergraphia, you know, they constantly are writing. They cannot stop writing. Oh, yeah. And, and um, there, there are people that operate like that. They have three or four projects going at a given point in time. And whenever they get stuck in oh. one, they rotate to the next and rotate to the next. And then they publish like three books in the course of two years and like you're going. It's great for them though. It, really it is. I, it's wonderful that people can work like that. And I kind of feel like I do that except for I don't do the working part. I just have multiple projects <laughs> that I may not get to. Thinking about. I keep procrastinating. Yeah. I now procrastinate across multiple projects. Oh, that's exciting. Look at you making progress. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I definitely have multiple projects going on at once, but I think that part of the issue is that only one of them at a time or none of them at a time, depending on where I am, will be, will be a writing project. Right? Uh, um, yeah. You know, I have a big life and I volunteer a lot and I teach and I run this website and I do a bunch of other things. And so I always have something. There's never, unfortunately, I will never have that life in which I get home from work and my work is done. <laughs> like, <laughs> that, I mean, no writer has that, I'm sure. That um, you retreat to your cabin with a crackling fire. And the snow falling uh, outside the nice. windows, and you quietly write, <laughs> listening like to classical snow. music. <laughs> it's like, it'd kill First you. No, just, I'll stop you with snow. I live in Southern California, and I just miss snow, but we won't get into that. My next <laughs> obsession is going to be weather, I think. It's not, though. It's totally not. My next obsession is death, which is sad, but that's where my next book is going. <laughs> so, yay. Hey. 
Want to learn more about our guests and other episodes? Then check out our website at www.thelitfantastic.com or follow us on Twitter or like us on Facebook at The Lit Fantastic. Do, do you want to speak a little bit to that? I mean, this idea of a next obsession and the fact that it is death. And, and <laughs> I, I think it is a common, it is, it's common because it's a human thing, right? It's like we all have to think about it at some point. At the same time, we, I, I think we, we live within a culture that resists the idea of an honest discussion about death. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I don't know if what I'm working on is really an honest discussion about death either, to be fair. Uh I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's not the best thing to say. I don't think it's a bad thing either. But, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of my work exists in this place that's this crossroads of a lot of disclosure, certainly not confessional, but aspects of sort of almost shameful disclosure. Mm -hmm. But it's also pretty stylized, whether it's through the meter and the sound play or the way that things are dealt with on the page or the mechanism through which I write, like my last project, which was Erasure Poems. Mm -hmm. And so no matter how honest they are, and I believe that they have this kernel of disclosure and honesty, they have to be pretty stylized and contrived because they're coming from texts that already exist. Mm -hmm. So, and I like that. That's actually what I like. I I don't actually set out to write art or Mm -hmm. to make art that is a raw truth. I'm not interested in that, really. Um, I, love, I love some people who do that kind of work. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to keep an element of that, but I really like this idea of a tension between the artifice and the truth of the art that we make. So um, I don't know if mine's going to be an honest conversation about that. <laughs> um, I don't think anything that sounds like pots and pans being banged together in a very sort of metronomic way is ever going to be considered raw or honest. But I like the fun of playing with that, with that idea of how do we make things sound like the truth? Mm. How do we get close enough to the truth through not just what the words say, but how they're said and how they bang off of each other and how we hear them. And unfortunately, it's, it's like trying to get to truth through, sort of through a lens, right? It's like trying to make a movie that's true, which of course we can't. Right. Documentaries aren't true, right? So I think I might have gone on a, on a tangent, but... Um, well, I, I think you, you've, you've raised something really interesting, um, which I think perhaps is maybe one of the underlying obsessions that runs through all your obsessions. Maybe. It seems to me that sound is, and mm-hmm. the phenomenology of the, the sound or the performance of a piece is, is something that really resonates, no pun intended, with, <laughs> <laughs> I'm awful, but resonates with, with the whole body of your work. Of course. Yeah. I mean, it was my academic dissertation, too, was about the physiological, physiological and neurological reactions to the sound and, and a little bit to the visual or spatial sense of text, but mostly to the sound of text. And this is something that I think we've dealt with historically as academics mm-hmm. forever in one way or another, um, understanding how meter enacts itself upon people, sort of the pairings we've made with sort of iambic pentameter and heartbeat the ways in which there have been studies, and, and not new studies either, that tracked how people reciting poetry would breathe. Mm-hmm. They would breathe differently. And this comes, I mean, from, from ancient chanting during ritualistic ceremonies, chanting is about repetitive sound, mm-hmm. right? And so it's always been important to us, I think, as long as we've had speech, we've had 
questions about the most effective ways to use speech and what we can do with speech. But with <laughs> written poetry, and now with really, really exciting and innovative tools, eye scanners, EKGs, like we have all these ways of measuring how reading different things actually physiologically and neurologically affects us, which mm -hmm. is super exciting and really nerdy. I get it. It's really <laughs> nerdy, but it's also... And here we arrive at, at just the, the tip of the iceberg of, of your, your geekier obsessions with <laughs> <Yep>. science. <laughs> um, and I'll tell you, I have like verbal fistfights about this, if that's the thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've had professors who feel like this kind of study takes the magic away from what <clears> we do. And I get it. <laughs> I mean, I get it. But for me, it's much more magical. I would rather see how the trick works. The tr Seeing how the trick works makes it more of a trick to me. It makes it more exciting than just the illusion of it. Does that make sense? Like knowing how, knowing that there, there, there is no way to put words together that are going to enact themselves exactly the same way on exactly yeah. everyone. <laughs> like there's no formula. There, there's no, there, there's no formula, but the, there is something. I, I think your, your examination, exploration into sound, reminds me a little bit of, uh, there's a fantastic book by Elaine Scarry, called Dreaming mm -hmm. by the Book. Yes. <laughs> which you probably are already familiar with, yeah. which I love. I love her discussion about how even the ordering of words affects the way that we imagine things. And that there, there's sort of a size limit to what our imagination can imagine in terms of the size of the object. So she talks about that, mm -hmm. that, that you know, for, for those unfamiliar with this book, and her, her writing, she talks a little bit, she talks about how like we generally cannot imagine things in great detail larger than the size of our own fists, which is why there's so <laughs> much writing about flowers and about things that fit inside our palm. And that anything mm -hmm. larger than that, we tend to zero in or zoom in on a particular aspect of it or a portion of it and use that metonymically to represent the whole. But it's really hard to talk about something that is bigger than our scope of vision, and especially, you know, even if it's no bigger than than maybe like, like a, a picture frame, still is kind of frustrating to deal with. Mm hmm. And this has a lot to do with the way even sociologists have realized that we have spheres of empathy too. That I think it's I think it's two degrees of separation. Although there there's a variation on what we mean by two degrees of separation, and how we can actually empathize. Like we can empathize and feel genuinely toward people immediately like related to us in some way. And I don't just mean familially related to us and then people related to them. Mm -hmm. But once we get past that, and again, those relationships can be manifested in many ways. It could be, you know, people in our country and people in the country that we feel like is most like ours. <laughs> and mm -hmm. then after that, but after that, the empathy and sympathy lines start aligning and we can feel bad for, but our under our ability to truly empathize and how considering how we really think of empathy as this deep and rooted understanding that comes along with sympathy, it, it escapes humans. And so I think th this question of scope is, is crucial <laughs> in this conversation of poetry. And I think that we've considered scope, not just about the ways we imagine, but the ways that work affects the body. The question of scope isn't just about what we can imagine in terms of objects or even abstractions. It's also what we can glean emotionally mm. and physically from text, right? <laughs> or even from spoken, you know, from speech, but I, I'm not going to, there's too much. So even just <laughs> dealing with text 
it's this idea that when you're reading text, you can get one or two layers of meaning. Mm-hmm. But it's like the classic conundrum of trying to be sarcastic over I am or text message. Right, right. There's only like so many levels of meaning that can come through in a way that feels comfortable to us. And so the idea of using juxtaposition of words or using sound play to create feelings that exist separately, you know, to either create contention with or to enhance the meaning that you're trying to put in the content of the word, that's exciting. Because we all know that chanting sounds scary. We know it's scary or deep, right? Mm-hmm. Like if chanting is never going to sound light and flippant and happy, right? <laughs> like that's just not, I think, try to, try to imagine chanting that isn't like some, that doesn't have some sort of emotional depth to your reception of it. Uh, outside of, outside of uh, Monty Python quest for the Holy Grail? <laughs> well, I mean, right, the joke there is you're <laughs> using something. I mean, that's exactly, what a great example, but you're using something that has this emotional gravitas or gravity to throw into high relief the levity that you're trying to create around it, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, I think an example I use a lot is <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street, which mm-hmm. is really funny. But at the beginning of uh, one of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, you have little kids chanting. It's like skipping rope, I think. Don't quote me on that, um, even though I'm quoting myself. But they're singing. It's little kids, and they're singing, one, two, Freddy's coming for you. Three, four, better lock your door. And this juxtaposition <laughs> of the, the children's voices and children, which we, you know, I mean, it's not just cultural, it's everywhere. We kind of associate with a kind of levity and joy, childishness, childishness, innocence, juxtaposed with this chanting, especially about something scary, mm-hmm. is chilling. It's so chilling. And that is because of contrast. It's both sound and content there. I hate to say it, but we're out of time. <laughs> It's been such a delight. Thank you so much for for spending this time talking about your obsession with obsessions, and well, uh, and and so no much problem. more. One of these days so you much get more. To yours because I know you have a bunch. <laughs> I have a lot, and no doubt they will somehow filter into. Well, I think they've already filtered into who I've selected for most of these interviews. So, <laughs> excellent. Well, thanks again, Neil. That was Jessica Piazza, poet and author of three collections in Tarobang, This Is Not a Sky, and Obliterations. Jessica also curates the website Poetry Has Value, where conversations about poetry, money, and worth abound. For more information, check out her website at jessicapiazza.com. You've been listening to The Lit Fantastic, a production of KBOO Community Radio in Portland, Oregon. Special thanks to freemusicarchive.org and to our producer and resident fantastic, Jenna Yokoyama. To learn more about our show or to check out other episodes, visit our website at www.thelitfantastic.com. Until the next episode, I'm your host, Neil Aiken. Thanks for listening.